I am really grateful for this opportunity to be with you and to share with you from God's Word. What I hope that we'll be able to do is think together from God's Word about the duties imposed by the Gospel, the duties imposed by God's mercy to us. And we will be focusing, uh, at this first session at least, on Romans chapter 12. Uh, I normally use the New American Standard Version. I need perhaps to explain why. I, I prefer it because it's such bad English. It's such bad English because it tried to maintain uh, some greater proximity to the original Hebrew, uh, uh, Aramaic, and Greek. And because I'm not used to using an English Bible, uh, this one is closest to what I would be most familiar with. Please join me again in a, a word of prayer. Our God, we come to you because we are in need. And become, we come to you because you are the only one who could meet our need. We also come to you because you have invited us. You are a gracious, a generous God. And so we come with confidence to find grace to help in time of need. We ask that you might be pleased to speak to my heart and through my heart to the hearts of the brethren here. Minister to us, Lord. Teach us your ways. Warm our heart to love you and loving you that we might love one another more wisely, more faithfully, more consistently. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul had no interest in an intellectual or an emotional religion. His desire was to motivate Christians to live to the glory of God. And that means living in a certain way. He also understood that truth is in order to holiness. And so rather than uh, trying to manipulate people, he taught them the truth. And he believed that life must be lived to the glory of God. And one cannot do so unless one really and truly has his fellow brother and sister, his fellow human, even if they are not Christian, at heart. And that such a, such a concern for others must of necessity find practical expression in the way that one conducts oneself in the family, in the church, and in society. Holiness, just really another word for spirituality, is not a feeling. Holiness is, is not a mystical uh, reality. It's how we live. It's where the rubber hits the road in everyday life. And that's why, well, that's really why we read chapter 12. No, I'm not good in mathematics, but if I'm not mistaken, if we read chapter 12, that means there were 11 chapters beforehand. 
And this is rather characteristic of the way Paul handles the practicalities of Christian life. He lays a theological basis for them. In chapters 1 to 11, Paul lays out before us a very clear, concise presentation of the gospel. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Romans. So you will remember that in chapters 1 to 6, he lays out the principles of the gospel. He shows us that man is sinful and that he can do nothing to save himself and that the only way of salvation is by grace through faith in God and what he has done on our behalf by sending his son into the world to be the savior of the world. The son became sin for us so that we might become the, do you remember the rest of the verse? so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, that's an important term in Paul's theology, and it is in ours, I hope. But it's also an important term in Paul's understanding of the Christian life, and it should be in ours as well. Jesus undertook to represent sinners in his death and in his resurrection so as to become the head of a new humanity, a redeemed and transformed humanity. And transformed and righteousness have a necessary relationship. In order to properly understand the Christian life, we must understand Paul's view of righteousness. And therefore, I will refer to this term uh, time and time again as we proceed. And then, in chapter 6, Paul begins to spell out the practicalities of redemption. And once again, we encounter this term, I promise to refer to, righteousness. The redeemed have died with Christ by virtue of his death to sin and its bondage. But that's not where it ends. The redeemed have also risen with Christ to the sweet and invigorating bondage to righteousness. And we are now to submit the very members of our bodies to be instruments of righteousness. And therefore, we are to submit them to God. And here again, this term body is once again an important term that he will refer to. And we will have occasion to come back to in Chapter 12. None died with Christ, but those who have also risen with him, just as none have risen with Christ, but those who have died with him. Righteousness is defined by the eternal law of God. And that is the next stage in Paul's presentation of the duties that God's grace, God's gospel imposes upon us. In chapter 7, Paul comes back to this idea of righteousness, of the body, and he shows how his, at the beginning, in verses 1 to 14, how his horrific lack of righteousness drove him to Christ. Now, in verses 1 to 13, Paul talks in the past tense. 
And there's a change there in verse 14 to which we will refer very briefly and then enlarge upon. But first, verses 1 to 13. Paul shows how God's righteousness condemned him because it arose, it caused to rise in his heart a, a conflict. He coveted something, whatever it was, and found himself condemned by his covetousness. And then in verse 14 onwards, he describes the role of the law which formerly condemned him now as something in which he delights in his inward parts, but of which he falls short. Now, from verse 14 onwards, Paul talks in the present term. It's, it's a term of now, of the present. It's not a term of the past, because he's now dealing with his reality as it is in Christ. And he tells us that the fact that he has shared in the life, in the death and the resurrection of Christ, has created a conflict in his life. He now delights after the law of God. He longs to do the right things, which he doesn't do. And he longs not to do the wrong things, which he does. And he cries out, by the grace of God, wretched man, who will deliver me from the body of this death? This is the cry of a Christian. This is the cry of someone in whose heart God the Holy Spirit has worked. He's changed his heart now. Before he was not conflicted, but now he is. Because he longs for holiness. He longs for righteousness. He longs to present the very members of his body as instruments of righteousness. But he says, who will deliver me from the what? Do you remember? That's not a rhetorical question. Body of death. Here's again that term, body. So chapter 6, present the very members of your bodies to be instruments of righteousness. And here is this body of death in which sin resides and is constantly driving him in the direction in which he wishes no longer to go. But chapter 7 doesn't end there, and it's one of the few places where I'm really delighted in the chapter divisions. Remember, the chapter divisions are not inspired. They're not part of the original text. They were inserted there to help us find what we're reading or where we stopped and where we should commence again. And so Paul cries out, who will deliver me? And immediately he answers because he knows the answer. He's a Christian. I thank God through Jesus Christ. He is the one who will deliver him. And then that deliverance is spelled out in chapter 8. Where we have that deliverance described in terms of a struggle in which all creation participates. And so the groaning of the Holy Spirit is Paul's groaning after holiness. And it is the Holy Spirit praying according to the will of God. So that 
when Paul talks about God working all things together for good, he's not using the text as we often do, tearing it out of context and applying it to everything. Well, of course, there is a truth there. That's not the truth of that text. That text talks about the conflict that he describes in chapter 7, and which he continues to describe somewhat in chapter 8 when he says that the whole creation is groaning, awaiting the redemption, the adoption. And remember what he talks about when he says redemption? The redemption of what? Our bodies. There's the body again. These are points that we often don't notice, but they're important because they're the, the fabric out of which Paul's theology is woven. And so he's promising us that God will one day free us totally from this body of death. And meanwhile, we groan in hope. We suffer in hope as we struggle with our sins, hopefully more than we struggle with those of those around us. Now, here we come to chapters 9 to 11. What on earth are chapters 9 to 11 doing in this description of the gospel and the, the conflict of the Christian? Paul has not gone off on a tangent because he is so concerned for his people. No, no. He's taken Israel as an example of a Christian. And he's illustrating the faithful grace of God in the very teeth of sin. And so therefore he will say that God's gifts and calling are not subject to revision. So that we as Christians can be comforted because... I mean, think of it, let me turn the tables around for a moment and say, if God would forsake us for our sins, obviously he'd forsake Israel for their sin. But if God has not forsaken Israel for their sins, why on earth would we think that because we have failed in Romans chapter 7, that he will forsake us? No, God is causing all things to work together for good. For those who love him. And now they're called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? Let's go back for a moment to chapter 8. That we should be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I can hardly think of a more unbelievable doctrine than that. Knowing my own heart. But that is God's purpose. And he told us at the end of chapter 8 that if God has purposed someone, he will bring them all the way to glory. That is, what is that glory? Conformable to the image of Christ. And so Paul tells us that God is true in Romans 9, 10, and 11, though every man is a liar. And that the day will come when he will turn ungodliness away from Jacob. In other words, he will work to save, to transform and save Israel. And so the day will come when God will work to totally transform us as well into the image of his son. That's the point of chapters 9 to 11. It's not a, 
it's not a eschatological tangent. It's an illustration of the amazing grace of God in the teeth of unworthiness. And here we come to our chapter at last, chapter 12. In most translations, not in the one we read, but in most translations, and certainly in the Greek, the opening word is therefore. What does therefore mean? That is not a rhetorical question. I don't ask rhetorical questions. Say that again. As a consequence. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to put it there uh, this way. Therefore is there for a reason. In consequence. In consequence of what? What all came before. And what came before? The gospel. The amazing grace of God. His kindness to us in spite of who we are. In spite of who we are not. In spite of what we do. In spite of what we do not do. Therefore. Therefore what? I urge you brethren to. Come on. Uh, sorry, say that again. Present your, bodies. Present your what? Bodies. bodies. There, there's the word again. As a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. In other words, how should we respond to the gospel? What are the duties that the gospel imposes upon us? What do the mercies of God demand of us? To submit our very bodies. Romans chapter 6. The members of your bodies as instruments of righteousness. Romans chapter 12. He's come back to the same topic. He's illustrated. He's talked about the, the duty. Then he's talked about the conflict. And then he's given us the hope. The confidence that God will yet accomplish all that he intends to accomplish in us. And then in response to that. Therefore I urge you brethren. And that includes cisterns as well. To submit your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Because he says, this is your reasonable service. The word reasonable is actually, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult word to translate. It's logikon in Greek, from which we get the word logic or, or reason, if you wish. But it can also be translated your, your spiritual service. In, in Peter talks about desiring the sincere milk of the world by which we will grow. And he then uh, describes this spiritual milk. The term is lokikon, exactly the same term. Now, what does it mean for us to submit our, our very bodies, the, in, the members of our bodies, as instruments of righteousness to God, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Paul spells that out in the rest of his letter. And we will be focusing on chapter 12. In essence, Paul is saying that we worship God amongst other ways by how we relate to one another in the context of our several relationships. Do we do so according to gospel principles? In other words, do we live out the gospel? Do we exemplify the gospel in our various relationships? 
he has primarily, although not exclusively in mind, the relationship within the church. But he, he does not expect uh, us to be more spiritual in the church than in, in any other context of life. In other words, he's not calling us to be hypocrites. And therefore, some of what he has to say, even in the context of the church, spills over to these other areas. Christian spirituality never withdraws from anything but sin. I want to say that again. Christian spirituality never withdraws from anything but sin. It does not withdraw from sinners because it recognizes that we are all sinners and that God has shown his faithful love to us in spite of the fact that we are sinners. None of us are better than the other. And that is why the whole idea of Christian separatism is contra-biblical. The refusal to engage in society in positive ways, the tendency to limit our contact with the world to criticism or evangelism and reactionary protest is not, in, is not compatible with the gospel. In fact, it's counterproductive. It actually constitutes an abdication of our calling to present our bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God. It is a denial of the gospel. It is a denial of the message of grace. Always grace is undeserved. And always it must be faithfully extended as God faithfully extends it to us. Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. The righteousness to which the gospel calls us is gracious. It's kind. It's humble. It's generous. It's sacrificial. It's sincere. Uh, in short, it's Christ-like. It, it's never standoffish. It's never condescending. It's, it, it's never arrogant or pedantic or peevish or, or self-serving or, or, or hypocritical. It projects Christ into society. And that is why spiritual and logical are so, or if you wish, spiritual and rational are so closely related. And so Paul has urged us by the mercies of God to submit our bodies as living sacrifices to God. First he says, don't be conformed by the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the church today has largely forgotten those terms. Today, in a professed effort to try to influence the world, we've blurred the difference between ourselves and the world. Instead of daring to be different, we often ape the world in its forms and shaping our gospel and shaping our church life. So many pastors have become executives. Uh, even our worship is impacted by the world's fads. There's often very little difference between um, how the world worships itself and how we profess to worship God. Uh, this ought not to be the case. But nor, uh, neither should we be so reactionary 
that we are thoughtlessly so. We need to think seriously about how to worship. Delighted to hear our brother play as well as he did the guitar today because the world loves guitars and apparently so do we. And the few of us really know how to more than just pluck out a few strings. We have taken to informality in, in dress and in, in conduct as if our church services are not meant for the worship of the king of all kings and the beloved dread of all angels. Truth is no longer recognized to be an objective reality. Instead, well, your, your view is as good as mine and mine is as bad as yours. And so we tend to be less careful in our understanding of the truth. Uh, we... we we're, we're, we're satisfied with a mere impression of a text rather than the actual content of the text, which is why we read Romans so many times and we don't notice these, uh, these connective tissues that are so important for the understanding the text itself. On the one hand, we develop a distaste for authority, particularly if it comes from the government. On the other, we compensate with a kind of uh, longing for authority that will absolve us of the need to study and to weigh reality and to come to responsible decisions ourselves. We want to be told how we should do things rather than encouraged to think through the issues. We either reject authority, except when we exert it, we popularize all kinds of other ways of life, or we are theoretically equal, blindly follow our favorite preacher, drinking in his every pronouncement as if it was the very substance of life. We've, we've given in to a kind of um, moral lethargy uh, that, that is inappropriate for those who are Christians. We, we cannot allow ourselves to do so because we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Alive, alert. And through the grace given to me, says Paul, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Ouch. Well, that is one that I need to constantly remind myself of. The world around us promotes a kind of of pride that dares challenge God and his order of things, uh, that dares put man and his wishes at the forefront of life. And that is often a temptation in church life, that we will endeavor to respond to the wishes of people rather than serve the glory of God and therefore dare address the real needs of people. And so nowadays, if uh, he wants to be a she, who is to say that he cannot be? Doesn't matter what reality is. What matters is what man wants. And this is really the, the, the ultimate consequence of this kind of self-assertion. I'm just reading at the moment um, Alex de Tocqueville's 
I'm probably mispronouncing it, his Democracy in America. And he makes the point as well that once the wish of the people is divorced from the will of God, moral anarchy is the result. Uh, he, he wrote in 1840, and he described reality as we are now facing it today. We forget, for example, that the Word of God says that if a woman, that a woman should not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God, and so should be to us, regardless of what society says, regardless of the consequences. Now, we love the word sacrifice, and so we sacrifice our money to send missionaries overseas so that they will sacrifice their lives and their bodies. But we should be the ones sacrificing here. Daring to stand for what is true. And if someone chooses to be offended, so be it. The heart is deceitful among all things. We must not be affected by this mistaken view of reality, not be conformed by this world. But give me the name of a prominent Christian today who is noted for his humility. We have Christian celebrities. And they surround themselves by all kinds of means of aura. In, in, uh, I, I often had the privilege of preaching in the Netherlands. And uh, I was instructed how we should come. I, I'm a minister of the gospel. And so I should have a black suit white shirt, and either gray, white, or black tie. Nothing else. And I should be addressed as uh, Domini. Uh, Domini, which means pastor. Never by my first name. That's unacceptable. When I traveled with one of our deacons, I was informed that he should come with a dark blue suit, but not black, because he's not a minister. And he should wear a, a somber tie, not red, or pink, God forbid, or yellow. And so they were creating a distance between themselves because basically what they're saying is that there are at least some among us who would not command respect without these symbols. Brothers and sisters, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Note that this text does not talk about what we say about ourselves or what we do. It starts with how we think about ourselves. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. So if you 
if 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 you if you long for something and you're you're not suited for it you're not suited for it we need the grace we need the grace to accommodate our aspirations to whatever gifting god has seen fit to give us but that has the obvious side as well if God has given you a gift, recognize it. Don't deny it. Don't act, oh, I'm really, I, I, I should not be called to this. Uh, you, you're not persuading anyone. You're certainly not persuading yourself. And you're sinning before God. God has given you a gift. Use it. Employ it. Thank God for every opportunity that he accords you to use the gifts that he gave you. That's why he gave them to you. Biblical faith is not belief in the validity of what we want to be true about ourselves or anything else. It involves the courage to face reality as God has chosen to shape it. How then ought we to think? Honestly, courageously, and humbly. In other words, righteously. Think right according to the measure that God has set. That is spirituality. And the word ought to think means, or as he puts it, remember he says, think of yourself soberly as you ought to think. Ought means that we are obliged, that it is a duty imposed upon us. And what obliges us? The gospel. The mercies of God. Because doing so is a is a practical aspect of presenting our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So we're not to feign humility, but to be sincere. Just as we are many parts in one body, and all the body parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually parts of one another. However, we who are many have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And each of us is to use them properly for, if prophecy, in proportion to one's faith. In service, in the act of serving, or the one who teaches, in the act of teaching, or the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, and the one who gives with generosity, the one who is in leadership with diligence, and the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul reminds us that although we are many, that means we're also distinct from one another, we are still one body in Christ. Now obviously, he's speaking here of church life. Once again, there is a measure of applicability both to family life and to society. He's telling us that we should recognize our gifts, frankly, and employ them. But he goes on to say that love must be free of hypocrisy. In other words, we should not engage, for example, in so-called friendship evangelism, which means I want to befriend you not because I like you or care for you, but because I'd like to add your scalp to my evangelistic belt. And once I come to the conclusion that I'm not going to make any progress evangelistically, I'm no longer interested in you. That's a corruption both of friendship and of evangelism. Love must be 
free of hypocrisy. In other words, the friendship that we offer must be the product of a real affection, a, a, a recognition of the fact that we share humanity. The gospel leaves no room for insincere and manipulative relationships of any kind. Our love must be honest. Proverbs, no, sorry, Leviticus 19 puts it this way. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall surely reprove him. So our love must be without hypocrisy. We must be sincere enough about our love to be willing sometime to risk friendships. Now, it doesn't mean we come with a club to hit someone over the head with it, but it does mean that we are not silent when we see a brother sin, but we come to him and we speak to him. And if he hears us, then we have won our brother. And if not, we don't give up. We don't say, well, he doesn't want to hear me and I'd rather have peace in the church or in the family or in our relationship. But we know we take two or three others to go with us and they hear him and they hear us and then we discover that we were in the wrong, not he. Or that we were both in the wrong, which is most likely. And if that doesn't work, then you go to the church. This is what Jesus said. These are the commandments of the one who gave himself for love for us. Detest, says Paul, what is evil and cling to that which is good. It is a kind of love that dares distinguish between good and evil, truth and error. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Uh, devotion here, of course, would mean an earnestness, a, a sincerity, a giving of ourselves to one another. Uh, brotherly love would imply a kind of a, 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 a personal involvement. Uh, the, we were talking this morning about the Seattle freeze. The Seattle freeze is not biblical. What is biblical is that we love one another and we care for each other and we're interested in each other and we pray for each other and we visit each other and we offer hospitality to one another and we, we, we assist each other in, in daily life. Paul goes on to say, give preference to one another in honor. It's part of sober thinking, is it not? Uh, an aspect of love that, uh, that's void of hypocrisy and does not presume to more than God has seen fit to give us. He goes on in verses 13 to 16 to talk about contributing to the needs of the saints. And those needs are not only material. I mean, it's easy to write a check. It's harder to offer a single mom every so often to babysit so she can go out and relax and have a good time or, or to enlist on a meal train or, or, or anything else like that. Or simply help someone move house. But contributing to the needs of the saints does mean a great deal more than cutting a check. I was talking with a family back in our church in, in Kirkland, and they have five children. They were saying, well, no one's going to invite someone with five children to their home. Uh, to be honest, I was, I was embarrassed. Surely this not, should not be the case. It means that we, again, going back to Romans 12, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. That we are not haughty in mind, but that we really share in the, in the lives of the people. 
A church, amongst other things, must be a family. A body of people who really, sincerely, sacrificially, affectionately love one another. That they're not lagging in spirit, they're diligent, and they're serving the Lord in the way that they serve one another. Paul goes on to say that the only way that we can do that is if we are, again I quote him, devoted to prayer. Because uh, this kind of life does not come easily. It only comes when we struggle with God, as did Jacob and Peniel. And until once again he strikes us lame time and time and time again so that we will learn to live as we ought to live. And when we do that, then we will find it natural to do what Paul goes on to say in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight, in the sight of all people. Never take your own vengeance, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So what do you do? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you are, let me use a modern term, you're embarrassing him. You're heaping coals of fire on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, uh, there's so much more that we could say, but this is what Paul means when he says, submit your bodies as a living sacrifice to God because of the gospel I presented to you. He goes on to talk about conflicts that occurred in the church. There was a multicultural church where people had strong views inculcated from their childhood. Generations passed as to uh, what should be done and what should not be done and how it should be done. And he basically saying, listen, there's one thing that is really important. And here we come to another term that I've not mentioned before and I, I shan't enlarge on, but another very important term in, in Paul's letter to the Romans as well as elsewhere is the word all. When we think of all, we think of all mankind in general without difference, and that's true. But it's not the main point. Paul's main point is this. The world was divided, starkly divided, between Jew and Gentile. And when Paul uses the word all, he means both Jew and Gentile. Now that, of course, means ultimately the whole of mankind. But what he's really telling the church, as he does here in Romans chapter 12, and he will carry on all the way to 16, the obedience of faith to which we are called, the mercies of God require of us a humble, loving, courageous, stubborn, kindness one to another. The way that God treated us. And all of this to his glory. Let's pray. Eternal God, 
You've been kind to us beyond, beyond imagination. You've loved us. You've given us your Son in spite of our unworthiness. You sent your Spirit into our hearts. And you made us sons and daughters destined for glory. Secured by, by your amazing faithfulness. What mercy. And by these mercies, you've called us to live sacrificially for you in the way, amongst other things, in the way that we treat one another. Help us to do so. We need to be more fully transformed, Lord. We need to be different from, from, from what we presently are. We plead with you, O oh God, for Christ's sake and for your own glory. Transform us by constantly renewing the way we think, our minds, so that we understand the gospel in a new and in challenging ways. Apply the gospel to our understanding, Lord, and then to our wills and to our emotions. Change our priorities. Teach us to discern your good, perfect, and acceptable will and to, uh, to serve you as you wish to be served. You deserve far more than that, Lord. Glorify yourself through us, we pray, although we do not deserve to be used in such a way. May your will be done on earth, in us, as it is in heaven. We plead with you in Jesus' name. Amen.